Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your great love. Father, I pray that as we dive into your word this morning, that we would, as always, be challenged and convicted to grow. Lord, that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened, our hearts would be opened, so that we wouldn't be blind or deaf to your word, but instead that we would receive what you have for us. Father, we pray that your word would produce inside of us what you intended to produce, and we pray that we would just continue to grow in maturity, in our faith, and then we would just have a greater revelation of who you are every time we study your word. And we give you praise and thanks this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hallelujah. Well, we're going ahead and uh, continuing on in the book of 2 Corinthians. And today we're going to make it through chapter 10. Now, the last two chapters have been about giving. You guys want to guess what today's about? It's not giving if that's what you were thinking. He's moved on. Now today, uh, he did spend the last couple weeks talking about giving, right? He talked about this, this gift that the Corinthian church had promised to put together for the saints in Jerusalem. And you remember, they were ready to do it. They were, they, were, they were reared up and ready to go, but then they just didn't follow through. So the last part of this letter has been Paul encouraging them to be ready for when he comes down. But now Paul is going to switch gears once again, because you remember that the first portion of this letter seemed to be Paul defending his ministry, and now Paul is switching gears back into once again having to defend his ministry from the false teachers, the false apostles, those who were showing up and opposing him and trying to undermine him to the church that he planted in Corinth. And it seems that they are always having something to say about Paul. And they're always seeming to somehow sh try to, to show the Corinthians how they are somehow better than Paul, or they would be doing it different, or they're better leaders. They're always comparing themselves to Paul, but trying to say that they're better. And there's even the implication as we get into today that not only are they comparing themselves to Paul, but they're, all these false teachers are comparing themselves to one another. They're vying for position. They're vying for authority. They're trying to make their way in to what Paul had started. So Paul is going to be dealing with a couple of, of, of things that they're, they're throwing at him, but the big one he deals with today is they say that, you know what, when Paul writes, he's all bold and he's strong and he's to the point, but when he's in person, he's weak. He's, he says he, his words are weak and even his bodily presence is weak. And they begin to accuse him of being two different people, one when he writes and one when he's there. But Paul's going to give a defense to, to why this is, and he explains to them why it looks like this. And then he's also going to give a defense to his, to, to his right to minister to the Corinthians. Because that's the one thing. These people are coming in, and they're, they're trying to build on what Paul's already built on. They're trying to sneak their way in and take over what Paul has done. But Paul says, listen, I have the right to minister to you guys. I'm the first one that was there. And then finally, he ends it talking about boasting and says, you know what? If we're going to boast, because that's what these other, these other false teachers were coming in and boasting at all their credentials and what they could do and who they were and how good they were speakers and all this stuff, they were boasting. And Paul says, look, if you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. Don't boast in who you are. And ultimately, it's not your commendation or somebody else's commendation that matters, but it's the, the approval of the Lord that matters. Amen? Amen. So let's get started. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 2, it says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, 
but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. So now, like I said, Paul's getting right back into it, and he's going to defend himself against the accusations of all those who would oppose him. And one of the things that they would say, like I said, is, is that he's, he's a tough speaker. He's, he's bold when he writes, when he's away from them. He's all tough and big and strong, but when he's, when he's in their presence, it says that he is humble. He's weak. He doesn't have any kind of presence. He doesn't really push his authority. And Paul starts out reminding him the reason his ministry is done in this manner. You know, many these, these people that were opposing him thought that, that somehow he just didn't have it when he was, he was there with them. But the truth is, is that, that Paul was doing much of this intentionally. He says, I myself, I Paul myself entreat you. He says, I beg of you, or I have this request of you, because he's going to request that he doesn't have to be bold when he comes down there and sees them face to face. He says, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You see, when Paul ministered, he imitated the way that Jesus ministered. Jesus didn't come, on, come down there and, and lord it over his disciples or throw it in their face. He, he operated with meekness and with gentleness. And Paul says that, I, that my ministry is supposed to look like Jesus' ministry. He says that, I, that Paul, that's what Paul always tells him, right? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul says, I come down with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. You know, Paul could have acted like a dictator or he could have domineered his authority over them, which is actually what many of these, it's funny. Some of them accused him of being domineering and other people accused him of being weak. It's, it, they all have something to say and it's all different, but some even accused him of being like a dictator or domineering his authority over them and some didn't. But the truth is, as an apostle, he did have that authority. He did have the authority to tell them what to be done in Christ. Because he was given that authority by Jesus. But rather than domineering over them, rather than, than pushing himself on them, throwing his weight around, he chose to act like Jesus and be meek and gentle. And we have to remember that meek is not the same as weak. People get those things confused. But Paul wasn't weak. He was being meek with him. He was actually playing down his role in authority on purpose and he had a point because he didn't want the focus to be on him. He wanted the focus to be on Jesus. It wasn't about how strong and powerful that, that Paul was, how much authority Paul had. He didn't want the focus to be on him. He wanted it to be on Jesus because what happens when we get into situations like that where the leader is all powerful and does everything, the problem is, is that people begin to look to the leader for their wisdom and their strength instead of looking to the one who gives wisdom and strength, which is Jesus Christ which is putting their focus on God. So Paul had a purpose behind the way that he did things. He wanted them to rely on Jesus Christ and not him. You know, you see that in churches all the time. One of the things that I've always tried to do here is make sure that I'm not the only one preaching. And you know, Joseph, Pastor Joseph usually preaches every third Sunday for me. And we have guest speakers come in as well. I want... I want everybody here to realize that there's nothing special about me. It's the Word of God that's important. It's the focus on Him that's important. There are so many churches that when the lead pastor goes on vacation, attendance cuts in half because people actually came to see the pastor instead of Jesus. And that's not something that we want. That's not what, that's not what Paul wanted either. He wanted the focus to be on Jesus. 
And then with Paul being meek and gentle, the truth is, is the mark of a good leader is actually meekness and gentleness and humbleness, not throwing their weight around. It's by leading by example and walking with people instead of pushing people. You know, you actually see that same idea in business all the time. A good leader is walking alongside those who are under him, not behind them with a whip telling them where to go. But the thing is, is there were those who came in and began to influence the Corinthians saying, no, that's that telling them that the, the meekness that he was showing was actually weakness. That he was afraid to be a bold in front of him. He was afraid of his authority. That's actually what Paul is kind of doing here. This is kind of a sarcastic thing. He says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble and when face to face with you. But, uh, humble when face to face, but bold with you when I am present. This is actually Paul, Paul kind of making a stab at those who, were, who were, were talking these things about him. But then he says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some of who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. You know, Paul wanted them to get their stuff in order so that when he came here, he didn't have to be as bold as he was in his letters. He actually wanted to, to, to be in fellowship with them and everything to be happy and them to be encouraging one another instead of him having to point his finger at them. And then he gets this other accusation. They accuse Paul of walking according to the flesh. They accuse him of living in accordance with the standards of the world that all Paul was doing this for was for fleshly gratification. They're saying that's why he acts this way because it's all about getting what he wants. It was all about him and his benefit. But Paul intended to deal with those with boldness when he came down. You know, the truth is, is the Corinthians were actually going to see Paul be bold and, and, and exercise his authority. But Paul begged them that it wouldn't have to be towards them as well. He wanted them to have their stuff in order before he ever got there. That's what these letters were all about, so they get their stuff straightened out before he got there. Paul didn't want the Corinthians to force him to show how bold he could be. And I get that. You know, one of the things as a pastor that's the, the hardest thing for me to do is when I do have to confront people, when I do have to, to deal with these things, and, and you wouldn't believe how much time I spend praying that, that people would just get it <laughs> and fix stuff so we didn't have to deal with it. It's hard. Dealing with conflict is hard. You don't want to... The, the, you love the people that you're dealing with, so you don't want to hurt them. You don't want to drive them away. You're always worried about what's the balance between causing conviction rather than condemnation because you want them, to, the whole purpose of, of disciplining people or talking to people or, or addressing people is so that they'll turn around and come back to Christ. You know, it's always worrisome when, when how that So I get what Paul is going through. I think this idea of him not wanting to, to be bold with them is just as much for their benefit probably as it is for his own. But Paul didn't want the Corinthians to force him to show how bold he could be. And in 2 Corinthians 10 through 4, 3 through 4, he continues, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul's detractors may think that he's weak and humble. I think it's funny that humble here is used as an insult, not as, a, uh, as, a, as an endearing quality, not a virtue. 
But they thought that he was weak and humble. But, but Paul does not intend to deal with this laying down. That's the interesting thing is, is Paul may, look to, may have acted in meekness and gentleness, but it didn't mean that he didn't war, that he didn't wage war. And over the next several verses, we're going to hear Paul talk about how he intends to wage war with those who oppose him. And ultimately, those who oppose his ministry, ultimately these people oppose the gospel. And at first it appears that he says, for though we walk in the flesh, it appears that he now all of a sudden is agreeing with them that he actually does walk in the flesh, but he's actually kind of turning that word on its, on its head a little bit and using it in a little bit different way. What he's talking about is, is that, yeah, even though I'm still living on this earth in a body, I'm actually living in the flesh. Even though that I'm susceptible to all the same weaknesses that every person that lives in one of these bodies is susceptible to, right? We're susceptible to, to temptation. We're susceptible to sickness and disease. All those things, even though he still lives on this earth and he, he walks on this earth and he has a body, he says, but that's not how we're going to wage war because we're not waging war according to the flesh. The thing is, even though Paul doesn't have supernatural abilities, he's not a superhuman or a superhero, none of this stuff matters because he doesn't have to wage war according to the flesh. Because Paul is not relying on his own abilities, his own strengths, or any of these things to deal with those who would oppose him. Because ultimately, the people that oppose Paul at this point are not just opposing him, but they're opposing his, the message, the gospel message. And ultimately, they're opposing God. And here's the thing about the, the weapons of the flesh, the weapons of this world. There are many, right? So there's the, the little ones that we think about, like he could start hurling insults back at them, just like they were doing to him. He could start arguing with him about his merits, just like they were doing with him. And then there's, you know, it escalates. You don't have to be in this world and watch too many war movies to know that, that weapons of, of, of the flesh can escalate to stuff that, that kills, dismembers, disbodies, all of those things to people. The weapons of this world are varied in many and, and varying degrees of strength. But Paul says that that's not how we war. But you know what? The problem is, is that so many Christians today still war in that same manner. Now, I'm not saying that they're typically killing people. But when someone hurts them, they lash out in return. When somebody insults them, they insult in return. And if I'm being honest, there's been plenty of times where I'm like, God, if I could just be in the flesh for a few minutes, I'll take care of this problem. I'll come right back. But if I could, if I could just, for one moment, you know, I, I often joke about it, right? When I say, Sometimes I want to shake the Jesus into people. If I could just do it in my own way. Now we all know that doesn't work. The problem is, is that when we try to wage war according to the flesh, when we insult when we're insulted, we return evil with evil, when we do all of those things, it never turns out the way we expect it to turn out. And there's never a good, never a good outcome. The truth is, is what would happen if in, when somebody insults us and hurts us, instead of lashing out and doing the same, just praying for them. Or maybe trying to discuss with them and see what the problem is so you can work towards a solution in love and forgiveness instead of waging war according to the flesh. But Paul says he's not going to wage war according to the flesh with these people. But instead he has divine power to destroy strongholds. That means when we start operating with the 
the weapons of divine warfare, then we have the power to actually break down these things that are coming against us, these strongholds that show up in people's life. Now, the, the, the weapons of, of divine warfare are, are faith and truth and righteousness, the gospel message, the word of God. These are the things that we, we war with when we're talking about divine weapons for people. And the strongholds that we're dealing with are, are anything in people's lives that are keeping them from receiving the message of God. And if we were to sit here and try to list them all, we could be here all day, but there's always something that leads towards unbelief in a person's life. These are the strongholds we want to tear down or the habits or the temptations or the sin that have people held up and, and tied down. We've, we don't fight those things with weapons of the earth. We fight them with divine weapons, with God's word and prayer. And here's the thing, that when we war like that, we're not warring according to our own strength. Because that's the problem that we always run into when we think we can do things on our own. We think we can do things our way. And I've tried it, and it never works. Even if it appears like it works at first, long term, it always comes crumbling down. The only way that you're ever going to see lasting change in anybody's life is if they receive the gospel. And this applies to everything. Politics today. Now, I believe as Christians, we should vote. I believe as Christians, we should do all of those things. But if you, if you let your, your, your identity and your, your future get so wrapped up in what politics is going on in politics, you're missing the point. The truth is, is no amount of Christian laws is going to save anybody. And if you want to see the world change, let's get people saved. Because you know what happens when you get saved, people? into positions of power? If we got, say, say that, that, that we were doing what we were supposed to do and we're sharing the gospel and, and, and we got the entire United States saved and then every person that's a senator or a governor or a house of representatives or the presidents, they're all Christians and they're all saved. You know what's going to happen? The laws will naturally become in accordance with God's word. But it's not going to be making laws that are in accordance with God's word that's going to get people saved. That's, earthly warfare but instead we should be praying for our leaders we should be praying for those in power we should be praying for those in office and when it doesn't turn out the way that we think it should turn out we should be praying that god works together all things to good according to those who love him and are called according to his purpose because god's going to get it to work out the way he wants it to work out no matter what happens if we'll just trust him and start waging war in his strength instead of our own we might see a different outcome, amen? Then he goes on in verses 5 to 6, still talking about those weapons of warfare. He says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. You see, the, the strongholds that you're going to see in most people's life is exactly what he's talking about here. It's arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. These different mindsets that, 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 that confuse people, every proud argument and rebellious idea that keeps people from the message of God, from the Word of God, from seeing God's love. And you're going to see these arguments for everywhere from, from arguments against God's existence or who Jesus was. You'll see these types of attacks on God's people. You'll see them in the attacks on God's people. And you'll see these in a lie that basically 
Every person is good. You ever heard that one before? I'm basically a good person. I don't need a Savior. That's one of these strongholds, these lofty opinions. You see, the thing is, is that, that we have to destroy these things with the knowledge of God and begin to share the truth and faith and prayer and all these things are effective against them. You know, that's why we lose so many young Christians when they, they leave the church and they go to college. That's why we lose them because we never equipped them to destroy these arguments and lofty opinions. And they get these clever arguments from, from atheists in college and they're easily persuaded. But the truth is, is that, that we have the weapons to destroy these things. We have the evidence to show otherwise. And we destroy these arguments and opinions with the truth of God's Word. And then also, did you know that you're going to even hear these kind of things in your own mind? That's why it says that we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You know, the truth is, is that you have stuff pop in your mind that's ungodly from time to time. You're going to be tempted. And that's not a sin. Even Jesus was tempted, but he did it without sin. But as the saying goes, is that, that uh, if a bird lands in your head, you can't do anything about it. But you can stop it from making a nest. So we take every thought captive. And any thought that enters our head that's not from God, we can grab a hold of it and we can get rid of it. It's when you let it go, when you let it begin to, to fester and form, when you begin to let it take root in your brain, that it begins to give birth to sin and every other kind of stronghold in your life. We have to ensure that we don't let it mature into sin or anything else that will pull us away from God. And we take those thoughts captive. How do you take those thoughts captive? Have you ever thought about that? Use the Word of God. When something comes into your head that's contrary to the Word of God, you just begin to speak Scripture to it. That's your most effective thing, is use the Word of God like a weapon, the sword of righteousness, and begin to, to quote Scripture to these things that pop into your head that are incorrect. And one thing that I found in my life is that if I'm actively focusing on God, things that are contrary to God can't make their way in. But I found when stuff that's contrary to God makes its way into my life, it's because I've taken my eyes off Jesus. And then finally, Paul says he's going to use his spiritual authority being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The truth is, is that there were people in the, in the Corinthian church that were still being disobedient. And he says, when I get there, I will be bold. I will deal and punish every disobedience. He says, but first, there's a condition with this one, is that their obedience is to be complete. You know, Paul was more focused on the rest of the people that weren't being rebellious, getting back right with God and getting on the right path, than he was dealing with those that weren't. His primary focus was the church, the ones that love him, the ones that were on the right path. And then once that was taken care of, once his disciples were taken care of, once his church was taken care of, he would deal with those who were still will, unwilling to be obedient. And then in verses 7 through 8, he says, Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. 
or even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. So now Paul, Paul challenges him to, to basically look what is before your eyes. Basically what he's saying is, look at what is obviously in front of your eyes, what is obviously going on. You see, the problem was is that, like I said, they had looked at Paul's meekness when he was with them, and they were persuaded by those who had opposed him to view it as weakness, to begin to see what he was doing as lifting himself up instead of them up. But Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they're confident they're in Christ, that they need to remind themselves that just as they're in Christ, Paul is also in Christ. And the reason this is important is because if Paul wasn't in Christ, he would have never introduced the Corinthian church to Christ. He wants them to look at the actual evidence of what's happening. You know what? I came down there. I ministered to you. Your life has changed. Jesus has touched you. And this is obvious. And if it's obvious that this has happened to you, remember that Christ is in me as well. So no matter what somebody else is telling you, if I wasn't in Christ, how could I have shared this stuff with you in the first place? He says, look, I'm not meek and gentle because I'm weak. I'm doing that as we already explained, the purpose of that was to show that, that the power and wisdom and strength comes from God and not from Paul. What he was doing was on purpose. And he wasn't in it for himself and walking according to the flesh as they accused him, but rather he was in Christ just like them. So he says, look at what is obvious. And then he goes on to say, even if I did boast of my authority. That's another one of the accusations that he would get. Because when he wrote his letters, he would sometimes uh, describe his authority, why he has the authority. So they were accusing him of now being boastful of his authority and being prideful about it. He says, well, even if I did boast of it, the Lord gave it for building you up and not for destroying you. The purpose of the authority that God gave him, which was God's given authority to him, was so that he could build the church up. You know, one of the things that I find interesting is this idea of, of what is boasting and what is not. You know, if you're just describing something that's a fact, it's not necessarily a boast. To say that he has authority, that God spoke to him, that God gave him authority to start these churches and to be an apostle, that's not him boasting, that's him just stating the reality of what happened and that's why he's there. But he says, even if we did maybe boast too much, I'm not going to be ashamed because the whole purpose was to build you up and to not tear you down. That's all. Paul always used his authority. It was never to take advantage of people. Matter of fact, the first part of this letter dealt with that. He says, look, we've always been straightforward with you. We haven't tried to pull the wool over your eyes. And we've always, he's always used his authority in an appropriate manner. But there was a reality with this authority is that Paul actually did have authority not given to him by the Romans, not given to him by anybody else, but actually given to him by Jesus Christ himself, gave him the authority to do these things. And as a result, that means that they really shouldn't take his letters too lightly. That they should receive them as coming from the Lord himself because that's how Paul was presented to them with the authority of Jesus Christ. His instructions did carry the full weight of the Lord behind them because it was God that gave him that authority. That's why when a police officer pulls you over, it's not that person that has any power, it's the authority of the badge that he's wearing 
that gives them the ability to ticket you or arrest you or to enforce any law that's in the city or the state that the person works in. When a police officer stands before you, it's not his own authority, but it's the full authority of the state or the governmental body that he works for. And the same is true for Paul. When he was ministering to them and instructing them, it wasn't just like Paul was coming up with it out of the blue. He was standing there in the full authority of Jesus Christ as he ministered to those people because that's the authority that was given to him. And as a result, they did need to pay attention to what he had to say. But even still, he did it in such a way that he came across as meek and gentle because Paul recognized where his authority came from and he wanted all eyes to be on Jesus. And then in verse 9 through 11, he continues. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. So even sometime Paul would use and explain his authority in his letters, the purpose was never to frighten or scare the Corinthian church. And matter of fact, what it seems is that Paul's letters had a very different vibe or feel than how he, he presented the same message when he was present. That seems to be obvious. The, 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 that, that's patently the case. I mean, there, these accusations were being made because they did see something, even though they were interpreting it wrong. The truth is, is his letters came across as much different than when he was in person. And I don't know what, what the case was for that. I don't know if, if, if it was all by design. Um, it was to show them that, that, that Jesus was a focus and not himself. And I imagine that that was a large portion of it. But it very well could be that Paul just wasn't a great speaker. Could have been the case. We all know that, that God's not afraid to use people that aren't, aren't uh, the perfect specimen of their different abilities. Moses had a stutter. David was a murderer. I mean, God's willing to use people in their weakness, not in their strength. Matter of fact, God does that on purpose. Because when we do everything in our own strength, we begin to think it's us. But if you do stuff where you're weak at, then you know it's God moving in you because you don't have the ability yourself. But certainly there was a different vibe from his letters. Apparently he was much better at writing and putting together thoughts than, than coming up with them on the spot as he ministered and spoke. And in these days, the ability to speak well or even look the part was actually important to being you considered a legitimate uh, a speaker, a legitimate uh, uh, a teacher of any kind. This was all important. Matter of fact, I was reading some research back then, and I forget exactly where it came from, but they were talking about in those days that like, to, to, be a, to be a preacher or to, to speak like in this manner, like it was important that you looked the look. Like If you didn't have the right look, it wasn't worthwhile for you to even do it because if you didn't have the look, people wouldn't take you seriously. So it was very important that they, they looked the part, they, they, they talked well, and they were doing the right thing in front of people for his message to be taken seriously. But for whatever reason, Paul was a much better writer than he was a speaker. So much so they even attacked his bodily presence. I don't know what that means. Maybe it just meant that he didn't look confident when he spoke, or maybe he just wasn't a very attractive dude. I don't know what the, what the, the it doesn't really say, but they did attack that about him. But Paul wanted to make it clear 
that it wasn't one person when he wrote and a different person when he talked. He says he didn't want to appear different or frightening in his letters. He didn't want to scare him in his letters. And they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. But he says, but let such a person, the person that would say these things, understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Basically, there's, he was saying, I don't just talk the talk or write the talk, as it were, but I also walk the walk when I'm with you in your presence. And as we already discussed, his meekness and his gentleness was likely by design to keep the focus on Jesus Christ. So Paul, Paul didn't just walk the walk. He didn't just write something in his letters, but he actually walked it out when in front of them. And instead of pointing his finger at them, he demonstrated it for them, which is likely a much better way of teaching people anyway. Amen? And in verse 12, he says, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. So now Paul is actually going to start taking a direct approach and begin to call out those who oppose him. Because here's the thing. These people are showing up. They're comparing themselves with one another. They're comparing themselves with Paul. They're saying, look, when I speak, I speak as authority. And I look good. And I look the part. And I'm doing all the right things. And Paul says that they just begin to, to compare themselves to one another. They compare themselves to Paul. But Paul says, look, I'm not daring to, class, to compare myself with those who are commending themselves. Why would he? Why would Paul need to compare himself to those? Paul's authority was not derived by his good looks or his eloquent speech. Matter of fact, there's many times, there, there's another time in Scripture, I forget exactly which, which book it is, but he says that we don't come in eloquence of speech. He just comes with a plain message of the gospel. But his, his, his authority wasn't derived from his looks or his eloquent speech. And like I said, I, I think the more you have it together in your own strength, oftentimes the harder it is for God to use you. Because the problem is, is that when we're, we're, we're good in our own strength. We tend to think we don't need God in those areas. And I know that's personally true of my own life. When I was younger, not too long ago, probably shortly, uh, a few years before, I felt the call in my life to be a pastor. I had it all figured out. Everything I ever did, I was good at. I was great at my job, any job that I ever did. And... Uh, uh, I was always good in school. I was always good in all that stuff. So I just relied on myself. And in hindsight, I see how God, how patient God was with me over the years. How long he waited for me to figure out. And then one day he said, all right, you got it figured out. Go for it on your own. And my world collapsed. Everything fell apart. My wife almost left me. We almost got divorced. We had to file for bankruptcy because our financial stuff fell apart. My relationship with my kids was awful. Everything just fell apart around me. My life collapsed because I was so prideful in my own ability that I wouldn't let God work in my life. And I finally had to be shown that I wasn't so hot by myself actually. <laughs> and when that happened, when we finally turned towards God and we finally put our trust back in Him and said, we're going to serve you whatever you want, that's when my life changed. 
And God has been so faithful. Financially, we're better off than we've ever been. Our marriage is stronger than it's ever been. Truthfully, I believe that I have the strongest marriage of any marriage that I know of. Not because of us, it's because of God. we put our focus on God. The truth is, if you want a marriage strong like that, put your focus on God. Make Him the priority in your life. Then your spouse, then your kids. That's really the order it should be. If you put your kids first above your spouse, it's going to hurt your relationship. And you know what a hurt relationship does to kids? It's hard on the kids. If you want your kids to have a strong relationship with you, with one another, and with God, make sure that your, marriage, your relationship with your spouse is strong. And if you want a strong relationship with your spouse, make sure that you both have a strong relationship with Christ. But I've been there. I know what it's like to rely on my own strength. But Paul says, I don't rely on my own strength, so I have no need to compare myself to somebody else. Because it's God who gives me the ability to do these things. And these folks were just measuring and comparing themselves to one another left and right, trying to one-up themselves so they could somehow get an inroad in. And just by doing that, just by making the focus of comparing themselves to one another, Paul says they're without understanding. They don't get it. They're missing the point. But the problem was is that unfortunately the Corinthians seems to begin to place more importance on clever speech and good looks. They were being deceived by those who were coming in. They were being duped by the fake teachers. And Paul, by not boasting, by being meek and gentle, instead of viewing that for what it should have been, the strength of a good leader, they were starting to see that as weakness. And they were starting to call him unimpressive because of the very things that actually made him a good leader. So now Paul's spelling it out for them. He says all these guys that are measuring themselves and boasting and comparing themselves, they're without understanding. Or in other words, they're just a bunch of foolish people. They're complete fools for doing those things that they're doing. And then in 2 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14, we're going to see that Paul says, but if we're going to have to boast, if that's what you guys need to see, then I guess I will do a little bit of boasting. He says, but we will not boast beyond limits, but we'll boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. He says, okay, we're going to boast, but we're not going to boast like the world boasts. Paul says, when I boast, I'm going to boast in the things that God has assigned to me, the stuff that God has given me. The point is, is that when Paul boasted, it still brought glory to the Lord because he's the one that deserved the glory of what everything was happening in Paul's life. Paul's not going to boast about his own achievements or his own credentials, but instead he's going to boast about everything that was God's credit in his life and everything that he had done for the Corinthians which should have been credited to God because it was God who assigned them the Corinthians and it was God who sent them in there to minister to them. And the truth is, is that we can all learn a lesson from this and understand that everything that we do is because God has given it to us. And I'm not even talking just about church stuff. Everything that we accomplish, everything that we do, if you're good at your job and you're a good employee, it's because God has given you that ability to do it. If you're a fantastic artist, the reason you are is because God has given you the ability to do it. Everything that we have, everything that we're good at, that we're talented at, that we're gifted at, is because God has made us that way. He's given you those gifts and abilities. 
And it's so crazy how your mindset on those things can change your outlook and everything. Like I said before, when I thought that it was my own self doing it, my life fell apart. But when I recognized that it was God that gave me these gifts and abilities, and ultimately for me, it was so they could be applied to the church. And when I started walking in that, then all of a sudden I became to be more blessed than I ever thought. Because I was honoring God with what he had given me and recognized that it wasn't me, but it was always him. But Paul says we're only going to boast in the, the, the area of influence that God assigned to us. And he did this to reach the Corinthians. God says, look, I want you to go minister to the Corinthians. So he says, for we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. What he means by that is, is that, that we're not stepping out of our boundaries. We're not overextending ourselves and going after somebody else that was, that was reached by somebody else. He's like, it's not as if we didn't reach you. We were the first ones to come to you with the gospel. We we're the ones that made it to you. He says, we're the first to come all the way to you with the gospel. We're not overextending. We're not trying to encroach into somebody else's ministry, which is exactly what, what the other people that were coming in and doing, right? They're trying to encroach into what Paul was doing and take over what he was doing and take all the credit for what he was doing. He says, we're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, but we actually were the ones to reach you. We have a right to be able to disciple and minister to you because we brought the gospel to you. He was the one that introduced them to the gospel and he was the one that started discipling them in the first place. And then in verse 15, he says, For we do not boast beyond limit in the labor of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may be preached the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Like I said, the ones that were coming in, they were starting to try to boast in Paul's labor. They were coming in and trying to take over what Paul had already started. They were trying to stake a claim in somebody else's work. But Paul says, we don't boast beyond our limit in the labors of others. He says, listen, we're not going to boast about how good we are based on somebody else's work. We're not going to try to take over what somebody else was doing. Paul always tried to minister to people that had never heard the gospel before. And he says that my purpose, my hope, is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So what's he mean by this? Is that as you become stronger in your faith, you're going to share the gospel with more people. And as you share with more people, that's going to create inroads for Paul and his team to make it to other places where he's never been before to share the gospel. His area of influence would increase as they continue to grow and share the gospel with others. And he says, this is so we can preach the gospel on lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Paul's goal wasn't to go and preach where Peter had already preached. Paul's goal was to preach to people who had never heard the gospel. And you know, this is still important today. It is never our goal, and it should never be any Christian's goal, to get somebody to leave one church and go to another church. Now, there are reasons for changing churches. There are reasons for, for switching churches. If God tells you to leave, that's one thing. But we should never go up to somebody and say, hey, are you a Christian? Yeah, where do you go to church? Well, I go here. Well, you should come to our church. If they've already got a home, our purpose is to not steal Christians from other churches. That's not growing the kingdom of God. You know, Christian musical chairs doesn't grow the kingdom. We want to see new people saved. Invite people that don't go to church to come to our church. Invite people that aren't saved to come to our church. 
so we can have the opportunity to minister to them. And the purpose of this, you know, when we talk about growth in the church, it's not about stroking the ego of me or anybody else here or even any of you guys because our, our church is growing and we're a big church. The whole purpose is so that our area of influence increases. We can reach more people for the gospel and more people will say yes to Jesus. That's the entire point of growing the church. Growing the church means we have more resources that's both financial and people to reach more people for the gospel. That's the purpose. And we're not trying to steal people from other churches. We want to see people get saved. Amen? And then he finishes off here in verses 17 through 18. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. As Paul is finishing up this chapter, he wants to remind them that even the boasting that he's done so far has been in the Lord. He wasn't boasting in his own abilities, his own skill set. It appears that he didn't have the greatest skill set when he was in, per in person, other than he loved people, he cared for them, and he walked alongside of them. You know, it's interesting. We, we, we can look at what the letter seemed to imply and what his opposition seems to imply, that he wasn't a great speaker, but he was an effective speaker. Even if he didn't have all the flourish and, and look right the way they expected, he was certainly effective. Look how many churches were started up because of his ministry. Look how many people got saved. Truthfully, the fact that, that Christianity is so prolific now is largely in part to Paul's obedience and God working through him. And I know he wasn't the only one, but he certainly wrote most of the New Testament. And he's had a greater, uh, a, a, a huge impact on Christianity and the church as he was obedient to God. Now, Paul says that the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. And the problem is what Paul is actually setting up for the next couple chapters is even though he doesn't want to boast, because the, the Corinthian churches were so focused on these other false teachers who were influencing them and they had somehow become under the spell of, of all the credentials that they had, Paul was going to have to boast himself. And we're going to see over the next couple of chapters as Paul lays out his credentials as an apostle. But the important thing here is that even in that, he's boasting in the Lord and not of himself. Because here's the thing, when we, when we boast of our own gifts and abilities, it's a, we're essentially commending ourselves. We are, we are lifting ourselves up. But Paul says, don't do that. Because no matter how much approval you get from yourself or from somebody else, that's not what makes you approved in front of God. He says it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends is the one that's approved. The truth is, is it doesn't really matter what you say or what somebody else says about you. The important thing is what does God say about you? And that goes in two ways. One, that's dealing with the area of pride. Right? We don't want to be prideful and, and begin to lift ourselves up higher than we actually are. Instead, we want to recognize that it's God working in us. But it's also a good reminder that when we begin to talk to ourselves and say, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, how could God love me? Does He even know who I am or the things that I've done? Remember, it's not what you say about yourself, it's what God says about you. God says you are loved. If you're born again, God says that you are perfect that you are holy, that you are righteous. If you weren't holy, if you weren't perfect, how could the Holy Spirit come and live inside of you? 
Because God can have no part in darkness. There is no light, and light and darkness can't coexist together. Now, I get it. Sometimes it takes a while for our body to catch up what has been done in our spirit. But the truth is, is that you're loved, you're righteous, you're holy. Remember, it's not what you say about yourself. It's not what other people say about you. What does God say about you? And no matter what the result is, just remember to boast in Him and what He's accomplished in you and not yourself. In the end, it's only God's approval that counts. And in the light of eternity, it doesn't really matter how others judge us or even how you judge yourself. That's why Paul says you have to judge yourself rightly in accordance with how God judges you. So church, I just want to encourage all of us. Let's be a people who, when we do boast, we only boast in the Lord and what He has accomplished in us and through us, making sure that He gets the glory and make sure that we don't ever let pride bring us to our knees. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.